Hello and welcome to another edition of the Cool Schools podcast. My name is Mike McShane, and I'm Director of National Research at EdChoice. Today on the podcast, we have Sharif Elmeki, and Sharif is the principal of Mastery Charter School's Shoemaker Campus in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Now, Mastery is a network of charter schools. I think it educates more than 14,000 students in the Philadelphia and Camden area. And Sharif runs a particular school in a particular neighborhood for which he has deep connections that we talk about in the podcast. This school is a really interesting one because unlike a lot of charter schools that started fresh, this was a turnaround model. And you know, a lot of the research on turnarounds and others is that they are very challenging and oftentimes unsuccessful. But this is the example of a school that beat the odds. So we dig into the types of things that they do to try and beat those long odds of turning around an existing public school. And I also have just wanted to get Sharif on this podcast. I'm a big fan of him as a writer. We talk about at the end of where you can find his writing on the various blogs that he writes for. So please stick around for that. And, and in our transcript, we'll make sure to link to those. So a multifaceted conversation, both about the school as well as some of his other thoughts on education. So this is a really fun podcast. So without further ado, this is my conversation with Sharif Elmeki. So Sharif, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to actually start this podcast slightly differently than I start most of these podcasts because I have followed your writing for some time now and thoroughly enjoy it. Um, and I, I think that Maybe uh, starting with your particular educational background, I, I dare I say you had a unique educational trajectory <laughs> yourself. So I'd love to know your story about your own education that you that you got, and then we'll talk about the school. But I think this is this is worth starting with. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. And um, yeah, my educational trajectory really, even though I didn't realize it at the time, really started with parental choice you know, in elementary school. So my family chose a, a Afrocentric school for us to attend for elementary. They felt that the neighborhood's public school was not conducive to to learning. And, and I'm sorry, I, this is in Philadelphia, right? This is in, in Philadelphia, absolutely. Wonderful. And, you know, when I, when I spoke to them later, as I grew up, I also realized that their, my grandparents had also chosen schools and they had decided that, hey, we, we want to find different options for you that, uh, opposed to the one that was mandated by zip code. And and so they did. And, and my parents did the same for me. And that continued all the way through uh, high school, like even middle school, I ended up going to school overseas, you know, um, you know, and they didn't just go there for school. But it sure. was also interesting that they were just exercising choice as, as parents have the right to do. So then after this, uh, this uh, your own educational trajectory, you became an educator yourself. You are now the principal at uh, Mastery Prep Shoemaker Campus. Could yeah, you talk? Well, let talk, me say that for you. Mastery Charter Shoemaker Campus. Mastery Charter Shoemaker Campus. Outstanding. Yes, yes. <laughs> so um, I'd love to know about your school. When did it uh, When did it start? What was the kind of impetus behind its its origins? Sure. This is the thirteenth year that we've been operating as a public neighborhood charter. The catalyst was how many kids were being you know failed at the time thirteen years ago. And so the school district, as well as the community, were really pushing for a different alternative 
for families, but also ensuring that, you know, the kids in this neighborhood, 19131 zip code, 19143, 19139, had an option to attend. So this school is a turnaround charter school, meaning that the same students, you know, continue to attend, but the different adults, different expectations, and very different results because of this uh, partnership with the, the West Philadelphia community. And so we're really proud that 13 years later, we were able to successfully turn it around. And interestingly enough, the same kids who left this school in June came back in, in August and really saw that, you know, what adults were, were going to live up to the promises that they made to them the, uh, the, a few months before. So I want to unpack a couple things in there. You sure. use the phrase public neighborhood charter. Normally we hear public charter, but you put right. neighborhood in there. Why is that? Yeah, so we serve most of our students uh, come from the surrounding area. And so the same feeder pattern that existed before we became a charter is also being served today. And so what that means is, you know, one, we add, we continue to add grades. So we, in our charter was written that we would, instead of just being a middle school, that we would be grades seven through 12. So our students are able to stay with us for six years, but also that the two elementary schools that used to feed into us continue to feed into us. And so by state law, parents still have to choose it. You can't just, you know, say you have to come here, but parents by and large choose to, to attend. And we now have, you know, just siblings, generational students where, you know, their siblings also attended here and families are saying like, you know what, you did right by my older child. I'm sending my younger child to you as well. And so where most of our students come from the immediate neighborhood of 19131 uh, zip code. So what is happening in the school now that wasn't happening? I guess it would be 14 years ago or the years before yeah, yeah. you all came in. Yeah, I mean, I think any any school, like uh, if they're successful, they have top talent, right? Like they have, they are making sure that the people that are educating other people's children are approaching it with a high level of accountability for themselves, that they have high expectations for themselves, but they also have high expectations and high levels of support for, for their students. And I, th I think, you know, top talent will win just about all the time, you know, and of course, with talent comes you know, the support that you have to provide, the systems that make sense. And, you know, I, I would say students as well, but the students were great before we became a charter. We just gave them the opportunity to really shine and, and pursue their, their dreams that they had for their children and for them and the students have for themselves. So when you're looking for that top talent, where do you find most of your teachers? Well, they, they come from all over. I mean, I think we have a really nice mix of alternative certification as well as traditional certification programs. But we have folks who come, you know, who knew from very early on they wanted to be teachers and lead classrooms. And so they went to teacher certification programs. We have a lot of Teach for America. Um, I, was, I think last time I checked, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, we had 40 percent of our teachers were TFA slash TFA alum. Uh, we have relay residents that we were residents in master teacher classrooms and now own classrooms and lead classrooms on their own. And so we've had, you know, we've had a whole range. You know, we're really looking for teachers who have a high level of self-efficacy, teachers who have the cultural competence to help students, you know, push beyond barriers, institutional barriers, 
institutional racism and things like that that they are going to encounter students of color. All our students pretty much are students of color, by the way. And, you know, our, our, our staff have the mindset that, you know what, like, you know, I'm going to teach this child, I'm going to educate this child, I'm going to support this child the same way I would do my own child. And so having that type of mindset is extremely important. But the, the idea of self-efficacy that, you know, I'm not going to blame the child, the child's circumstances, I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm holding myself accountable. And if there's something wrong, I'm going to figure out how to do it right. And it doesn't mean that I'm not holding high expectations for students. Like we're, yeah, we want to really challenge our students. But if we have the right mindset, it usually is a motivational perspective that we use to motivate students and, and encourage students and things like that. But I think by and large, adult mindset is really what transforms, uh, you know, school communities. So when you're trying to find teachers that exhibit this self-efficacy, how do you, I mean, is that, is that done in an interview? Do you look at their past experiences? How do you select for self-efficacy? Yeah, so I think it, it, you have to do a couple of things. I, th- I think one, yes, we're always looking for, you know, candidates who can respond well to scenarios and, and questions and interviews. We also have demo lessons and we get feedback from the students as well. So they will do a live demonstration lesson in front of students and and see how they you know think about but a lot of it is is afterwards like the lesson can you know be one thing but really afterwards we're really trying to see what's your planning process and what is it what does it mean to to educate a classroom full of black children in in today's context like how how do you support their positive racial identity how do you address the challenges that they may face what do you expect of them and why do you expect that and and then also looking at like how do you approach planning with standards? Like, and what do the standards mean to you? And how do you feel about holding yourself accountable? Because a lot of people sign up to teach children. Less people want to view themselves as accountable for how much kids learn. And for us, that's what we're looking for. Like, do you view yourself as, as accountable, the most important factor in, in a child's education outside of their, their parents? And so, you know, all of those pieces are are important and, and we, we look to like really probe and investigate and and see like how they respond. But you know, in addition to to that, I think past markers of success is a great indicator of what future success will look like. So we want to hear about like what challenges have you faced, you know, and how did you overcome them? And you know, if if people are prone to blame others, blame the environment, you know, not kind of look at their locus of control as 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 wide and strong and sturdy, then that that will that will show. And then we're also looking for like how they accept feedback. So we give feedback about the lesson and then we ask like how would you do that again? How would you do that over? What are things that you could do that will accelerate students' achievement? So all of that is really important and that we really try to investigate deeply. And how do you find the talent pool in Philadelphia? Do you find yourself having a lot of great options to choose from? Is it different, perhaps different subject areas or others or, or more? Just uh, how 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 deep is the pool, perhaps would be the question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Pennsylvania right now, the pool is not deep enough. You know, we're, we're definitely, <laughs> as a state, we have to do do a lot better. And I think, you know, we're taking some positive steps to to not only recruit talented educators, but also a diverse pool. 
And so that's something that's really important to our Secretary of Ed, Pedro Rivera, his team, as well as our district, Dr. Height, as well as, you know, many, many educators. So it's it's not enough. We are right now, I think, having a a challenge, but not something that is not insurmountable. So we just have to be even more strategic. I think we've started engaging even high school students earlier on and saying like, hey, we, as you, we're going to support you in whatever you choose to do. But we also need our talented uh, students to consider leading a classroom and being, you know, and being teachers. And so that seems to resonate with students, you know, particularly this idea of, you know, be the teacher you knew you needed at this age, you know, but consider becoming a teacher you wish you had. And really trying to encourage, you know, more students of color to consider leading a classroom. So we talked a little bit about public policy uh, as it relates to the teacher supply. But given that there are a fair number of people who listen to this podcast who are interested in public policy, I'd be interested to know kind of your experience with policy. Are there policies that the, your local district or the state or the federal government has that make your life more difficult? Are there changes that have happened in your time that have made it easier for you all to do what you need to do to serve kids? Um, if there was like a, maybe the, the easiest way to phrase is it is sort of, if there was one law or policy that you could change, what would it be? But just your kind of general read on your, your kind of relationship to education policy uh, in your community. Yeah, you know what, I, before I did a couple of fellowships, one with America Achieves, um, and the other one with the U.S. Department of Ed under Secretary Arnie Duncan and and John King, I was kind of just mentally far away from policy and just like, hey, as long as policymakers stay out of my way, I'm mm-hmm. fine. But really came to the realization that that's not really the case. And as educators, we have to engage policymakers. You know, we have to make sure that they are aware of how even the most well-intended policy can have unintended consequences and what those and if we don't speak up and and use our platforms to voice that then that can get lost so that's really important that we stay engaged and it's a two-way street we would really want encourage policymakers to visit schools like sit down with teachers like sit down with families and and not just during campaign stumps but also make that part of your you know your monthly role that, hey, I'm engaging educators, you know, um, my constituents, many of them have children and they attend schools. And so what that, you know, what that looks like, I think, you know, if I, as a principal of a, of a charter school, and, you know, I was also a principal in, in my traditional district, one of the things that I think always needs to really be paid attention to is, is how much we value children's education and how much, what one school's funding stream looks like as opposed to others. I think it's it's really consequential that, you know, we we basically pay kids, we fund kids' education based off the zip code that they live in. And I think that's problematic on many fronts. <laughs> and and so Absolutely. you know, and so I think that's a that's a huge thing that's not addressed um well enough in, in um Pennsylvania as well as many other states. I think the other um piece being as a from a what my uh, as a charter leader. I think the uh, some of the things that I see in other other states or, you know, meaning like a independent charter authorizer board that authorizes charters independently, I think is really important. I think um, this idea of uh, facilities and who, you know, who has access to the facilities, who has, you know, 
I think charter operators, particularly if they're high performance, should have first right of refusal. And so that there's making sure that we have the space to expand and, and things of that nature. Um, and also just like what really hit home to my families, you know, a couple of years ago was, you know, our state lost a billion dollars in educational funding. And for my school, for Shoemaker, that meant $1 million. And so if you can imagine, I had $1 million less in my budget to educate children. And, you know, so people can say what they want about like, oh, money doesn't matter. It only matters to people that have, you know, tons of it. For everybody else, <laughs> it matters and it matters a lot. You know, it's not the only thing. You know, I think accountability is is dovetail, has to dovetail with it. But, you know, you can't ignore a million dollars less in the school budget when we're talking about educating the future of our of our city, state and country. So I have to ask, what happened to the billion dollars? What 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 decision was that? Well, you know, those were kind of the decisions when, you know, there was uh, money infused after the uh, the financial breakdown of the country. Oh, sure. Kind of post, post-recession. Right. Post-recession. There were some issues of just like how they spent the money during that sure. time and what to do about it. So I think it could have just been a, a stronger sense of like what to do, how to do it. And so that schools weren't taking this uh, this enormous hit. Um, sure. You know, and that being said, like even with a million dollars less, I still view myself as a cow. I'm not just going to throw my hands up and say, "Oh well, I can't, I can't educate children." But like, man, it was it was <laughs> a million massive. bucks is a million yeah. bucks. <laughs> yeah, like you know, you can't really get around it. So like, our class sizes had to balloon, including classrooms where students were, you know, far behind in in um, reading and 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 their um, problem solving math skills. And so you know, I, I can't ignore that. So we, you know, continue to chug ahead and, you know, we're fortunate that it's gotten a little bit better. However, you know, that was that was pretty massive. So now how do you all measure success? How do you know if what you're doing is working? Yeah, so I think we have a, you know, we try to use a dashboard approach. So, you know, obviously our, our students, you know, how students can perform on a grade level exam matters. It matters a lot. And we also look at things like, you know, student surveys, like we ask students, we ask families, like, does this work? Are you feeling like you are, uh, we are helping you meet your your goals? And we look at our college uh, matriculation rates. And so we can, if we're saying we're doing things and, you know, part of every school's mission or vision is something around post-secondary or something about, you know, students pursuing their dreams and things like that. So, you know, you have to measure that. You can't just say it and say, oh, we have flowery language. So that means we're successful. We have to actually see, does that work? Is it working? And how do we get better? And so we we look at things like, you know, are students reporting to, to school, you know, reporting to college, you know, on day one, you know, what, the, what does the summer slide look like? And do they have the skills to, to navigate that? Or what does it look like going from freshman to sophomore? How many graduate, you know, so we're constantly tracking, tracking that to see. And then we also ask not only our current students, but also alumni, like, Hey, how could we have helped you be better prepared? What what should we continue doing? What should we stop doing? What should we start doing? And so this idea of asking questions from our constituents and the people that we say we serve is is really important. And on the test, we're also looking at like growth. You know, like you a student may come at one level, and and where are they 
after instruction, where are they after interventions are, are taking, um, have taken place. And so we're looking at a lot of different, you know, data points, you know, our, our, our yearly metrics is, uh, you know, it's a full page, you know, that we're constantly looking and probing and seeing like, okay, how do we keep a continuous improvement mindset and action plans to address the holes that we see? So now I've heard some skepticism in some quarters about student surveys that they say, Student surveys, you know, they're biased. Maybe maybe a teacher was really a great teacher, but they were just really challenging. And so kids don't know. I would love to know, do you find a lot of value in them? Or are there particular things that you ask in them to get the most use out of them? How, how do you use those surveys? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I believe that it's you may have a couple areas of, of by a couple students where, you know, I've heard people say, oh, students had a bad day. I'm like, yeah, 800 kids aren't having a bad day on the same day. <laughs> And so I, I, I value student voice a lot. And, and I, I think it's, it's disrespectful just to dismiss the people that we serve and just say, oh, they're, they're biased. You know, everybody has biases, but you can still, if I give a survey to a class, you know, 130 students in, in the seventh grade class, I should still be able to see some trends. And the thing about it, like we see a lot of positive trends and positive feedback as well. So it's not just like, oh, every student is just given a lot of negative information. Given, you know, we get a range, but we can still see themes. And so we'll be able to see and the students give feedback to to their teachers in our school. I'm like, hey, you know what? This is uh, this is my teacher notices my hard work. My my teacher, you know, helps me to understand my teacher challenges me. And so they're you know, we're asking questions to get uh, feedback that, you know, even with someone, if a child is having a bad day or child has a particular bias against uh, one teacher, it's not going to be 130 kids just making up stuff about their sure. experience. You know, we're asking them about their experience, and and students are perceptive, they're honest about their their uh, experiences, and they provide valuable feedback for us to you know to to uh, use and improve them. Yeah, it was funny while, while while you were talking. One of the things that sparked in my mind, I wrote a little note to myself. Yeah. No other industry uh, would completely disregard the opinions of its users, right? Yeah, it's, it's just <laughs> we, disrespectful. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, no no one would here. say that, right? No yeah, one would yeah, say I mean, this. I think we have to approach the work with a level of humility and really say, like, are, are we that we're serving people? That means we're, we're curious and concerned about their experience and about our efforts. And so if we don't have that mindset, then it's it's going to be problematic in, in how we do it, how we approach the work, as well as the results that we get. So now you have made decisions that as you spoke about doing these fellowships uh, with, you know, with the Department of Education and with other organizations, you're a prolific writer, you're a speaker. I'd be interested to know, you know, uh, being a being the principal of an outstanding school is i mean that's probably more than more than enough work for one person so <laughs> yeah. just your own kind of personal decisions to do these different paths what what sparked those yeah you know my parents were activists and so i i have always approached this as an activist slash educator meaning that i you know i really try to champion things that i believe are, are right and and just Educational justice being one of them, parental choice being being one of them, you know, high standards, high expectations for, you know, for the folks that are getting paid to serve communities. You know, so I, I think, you know, we I also believe that, you know, too often educators, many educators are very humble in their work. They 
approach to work would just really, I used to call myself a school rat, for example, right? Like I was just, just wanted to get in my school, just leave sure. me alone, just, I'll, I'll just really focus on that. And what I, what I really came to realize is that it is extremely important that, the, that educators have a, have more visibility in addressing some of the, the ills that everybody wants to try to address from afar that they, you know, and, not, and there's space for policymakers and politicians and, and all of that, but it, it should not, this work should not be done without teachers and educators at the table on the front end, you know, and I think, you know, anytime we're trying to address complex problems, which we have in our educational systems in, in America, that you can't do that without the people that are closest to the issues at hand. And so whatever, and, and it goes for anything, even outside of school. Whatever you want to approach, make sure that you're you're engaging the people that are closest to the issue that you're thinking that you want to solve. If not, you're not going to solve it. That's an incredibly wise insight. So, so if we're looking to the future, what does the next year hold, the next five years hold, the next 10 years hold for your school? Yeah. So what we're really right now, we're really looking to see how do we help students in their post-secondary um, pathways. We've gotten uh, feedback from students that, hey, you know what, I, I'm, I'm looking at college, but I also want to make sure it's the right fit. And so that we're really trying to partner with families to, to make sure that we are as transparent as possible, that we're as helpful as possible, and that families are able to make the best decisions for their, for their children. Uh, we've been doing really, really a lot of data collection around where our students are the most successful and how do we help them, you know, pay for it? We, I want five years from now, tomorrow, 10 years from now, I want as many students to be able to pursue their post-secondary goals with as little debt as possible. You know, I, th- I think that's, a, you know, part of the educational right that our, our children deserve. I think the, the other piece is more opportunities within our school. We, you know, our students have asked for like, hey, we want even more courses, more, more varied courses to engage with. And so that's something that's also very interesting. And then just what different pathways look like. How do we increase dual? Right now, only about 10 to 20 percent of our students participate in dual enrollment courses. And we're looking at like, how do we how do we do that more? How do we do that earlier as well as more often? So like 10 this year, I think 15 percent of our seniors, they don't even come to our campus. They go to Community College of Philadelphia for their entire senior year. And so we'll see them for like after school activities or things like that, but all of their coursework is at the uh, community college level. And we're just like, all right, how do we do this for juniors as well? How do we engage sophomores in this process? And how do we, you know, just find multiple pathways for as many students as possible? Well, that's wonderful. So now for the, the listeners, which I have to imagine will be a majority of this podcast, who would like to hear more um, I could keep talking to you about this stuff for a long time, but for those who want to hear more, where can folks find your writing? Um, all the different, all the different spots that you write for. It'd be great for folks to know about those. Sure, sure. Um, I have a blog page called Philly Seventh Ward. P H I L L Y S, the number seven T H W A R D. dot org. Philly Seventh Ward is is where I, I house most of my writing. I'm also uh, one of the featured voices on Education Post dot org and people can find me on twitter at at s-e-l-m-e-k-k-i at selmeki first initial last name perfect and we will make sure in the transcript that we publish those of you that are listening to this if you 
you just scroll down. Um, you can see we'll have the transcript and we'll make sure that there are links to those, um, all of those in there. Well, Sharif, thank you so much for joining the Cool Schools podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to, to listening to this as well as the other episodes. Thanks a lot. Well, that was an incredibly enjoyable conversation. Like I think I told him at the end, this could have gone on for a very long time. This could have been like one of those Joe Rogan or somebody podcast that goes on for four hours because I could I could pick his brain about education policy and school operation until all of you would definitely be tired of listening to it. So like we said there at the end, though, he's a prolific writer. Check out his stuff. Um, Every time I read stuff that he writes, I learn something. He challenges me. Um, And so I really appreciate that he took the time. He's clearly a busy person. And so he took the time to chat with me, uh, which is something I'm incredibly grateful for. As always, this is the part of the podcast where I tell you, subscribe. Subscribe to the Ed Choice podcast. You get cool schools as well as lots of the other podcasts that we do where we do profiles of researchers. We talk about what's going on related to school policy in states. We have these kind of fireside chats. We talk about pop culture. We do a little bit of everything related to school choice and education policy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast. You can also, if listening isn't your thing, but really, I mean, I think listening is kind of everybody's thing. But if it's not, sign up for the EdChoice email list. You can go on our website, edchoice.org. A little thing pops up. Put your information in there and um, get the information that we send out. If you're interested in research, if you're interested in policy, if you're interested in Like I said, what's going on in states, all of those things are at your fingertips. In closing, I always like to put the call out there, more cool schools. If you know of a cool school in your area, if your kids go to a cool school, if your niece, nephew, grandson, granddaughter, random person that you meet on the street know about a cool school, send them my way. Tweet them at me, email them to me. I would love to uh, profile that cool school. And the way that I hear about these overwhelmingly is via word of mouth. So this was a great conversation today. I look forward to chatting with you all again when I sit down with another talented, interesting educator and talk about their cool school. (laughs) 